Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts today. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Matt Ford. Matt Ford is a stand-up comedian, a broadcaster, a podcaster, a writer performer on a new series of Spitting Image, which is now being broadcast, and last but not least, the author of a new book, Politically Homeless, which is going to be our first topic of conversation, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to have you, my friend. So uh, let's start at the beginning. You're, you're from a single-parent household. Uh, your mother was living on benefits. Your mother obviously had very poor circumstances in which to bring up uh, you and your, your sister. So you had a brief flirtation, obviously, with the Socialist Workers' Party as you recounted the book, but you obviously left out quite quickly. What, my, my, what I find intriguing is you didn't then just move to the kind of hard left of the Labour Party or even the soft left. You kind of went straight into the centre. Why did you make that kind of lurch? Well, I think I was 14, so it didn't feel uh, like a sort of huge uh, decision, really. I, I, I joined the SWP because, um, you know, I was walking through Nottingham. They were passionate. They uh, were, you know, the energy is really attractive. And I think they had really simple answers. And that, again, is attractive, particularly if you're young, if you're kind of vulnerable or, you know, sort of malleable in any way. But my experience in there, even though some of them were very nice, was just that they were just angry about everything. And uh, it just wasn't for me. So then I kind of, you know, I'd been a la- I knew I was Labour deep down, really. And I found Tony Blair just to be really exciting, really inspirational. And, uh, you know, he'd not long become Prime Minister. And I thought, actually, that is more the sort of Labour brand of politics that I identify with. So it's, it's good timing in a sense. You said like a comic is important to have good timing, but also by the time you're 15, when you admit to becoming kind of politically mature and politically active, that just happens to coincide with the new Labour and gaining power. So that was quite, that was good timing. It was really good timing, actually, because I knew I was Labour before then. And, you know, if, I mean, who, you know, if you think of the 1994 Labour leadership contest, let's say that it had been Margaret Beckett, I'd have still joined the Labour Party. I'd have still ended up with Labour. But I think Blair was obviously such a, compared particularly with what had gone before in both Labour, but in particularly the Tory party, you know, Blair was just such a fresh change. And I think particularly for young people, particularly young people from my sort of background, he was a real symbol of hope. So I'm very lucky that my political um, activism started at a young age around the time that Labour were actually in government and able to do stuff. What's interesting is that, like a lot of people, you, you sort, of, sort of fell in love with uh, Tony Blair, physically at least, uh, around that time, uh, like a lot of people did, obviously. Uh, but even now, fast forward, you know, all these years, you still refer to yourself in the book as a, as a Blairite, which is, seems almost, it's, it's kind of quaint, but also very unfashionable, no, to, be, to, to self-identify as a Blairite, rather than as a kind of term of abuse by some of your enemies or something. Yeah, I think it strikes me as odd that it's that it that it's become that. But it's pointless me pretending. You know, I think it would be kind of craven of me to think of a new label because that's you know th- there's no better way to describe that point on the political compass. Really, you can call it the progress wing or you can call it new labour. Really, we all know what we mean. Is Blairism is uh, it was hugely popular. It won three huge victories for Labour. If Labour wants to, and and everyone since has lost. <laughs> Labour want to win again. That's what they've got to do. You know, really oddly, it's it's unpopular in certain circles, but actually, if you take the label away, that brand of politics is what British people really want. So, even though the label might be um, 
quaint or a term of abuse in some quarters, the actual principles of it are as popular as they've ever been. Okay, well, we'll come back to that in a moment, and uh, maybe when we talk maybe also about the Keir Starmer's leadership of the party. But before we get to that, um, you're pretty scathing, maybe for obvious reasons, predictable reasons, about Jeremy Corbyn is on Taraj, but you're also pretty scathing also about Ed Miliband. It's almost like we've, we've kind of all had the collective loss of memory that Ed Miliband was leader of the party, Labour Party, for five years, and we've kind of forgotten about that, especially as he's now joined the Labour uh, shadow front bench, right? There's a you've almost been rehabilitated, but you 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 don't pull any punches in when you're criticizing Ed in the book as well either. What 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 compelled you rather to to get, go for him as well as much as Jeremy Corbyn? Because that's when I really that was what started me kind of getting annoyed with Labour was that I just felt it was such a self indulgent waste of time the Miliband years. You know, Labour could have won that election in 2015 uh, had David been in charge, uh, or had Ed taken a different course, and I just thought. It drove me mad that I grew up learning the lessons of militant effectively in retrospect when I was working for the party and, uh, and also learning the lessons of if Labour departs from where New Labour is, it can't win elections. So that, I, th- I thought that Ed Miliband, you know, instead that the New Labour era was over, contributing to that narrative, that actually the last Labour government wasn't all that and uh, kind of showing a bit of leg to the hard left. And this idea, you know, the, the kind of political vanity of going, well, maybe I'm the one that can move Labour to the left and win, despite all the evidence that the past tells you, despite all the evidence that was, you know, in the present, which was the polling was that the public weren't going to vote for this. It really annoyed me. So um, he's a lovely fella. He's far cleverer than me. He's had a far better education than me. Um, you know, he, uh, he has many great strengths, but his leadership really alienated me. And a lot of people used to work for the Labour Party. I talked to a lot of former colleagues who, who were kind of driven mad by that period because those, they, they were years when Labour really should have been on the pitch. And uh, it, it was a sort of self-indulgent period that people from my sort of background need a Labour government. Like, it is a matter of urgency. It will decide how long they live. And for the Labour Party to basically masturbate itself intellectually for five years and now for ten, I think it's... I, I, I really, it makes me wonder what people are in politics for. You know, this isn't a kind of debating society where you guys get to talk about left-wing politics and feel good and clever. This is the urgent matter of other people's lives. And it, it really made me think, well, maybe you're not in this for the same reasons that I am. But with the benefit of hindsight, can you, can you understand now why after this five years of masturbation and, uh, and uh, Ed Miliband, we then had another almost five years of uh, Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, that was, well, he paves the way for it. I don't, think you could, I don't think Corbyn would have happened without Miliband. I think he kind of woke up the sort of stirring, slumbering beast of the hard left in the Labour Party and kind of said, look, it's kind of game on, you know. Um, and actually some of your stuff's okay. You know, I kind of, I like the energy of you guys. And that's what people on the soft left always say, oh, there's so much le- energy on the hard left. The commitment. Yeah, the passion of it. And it, you're like, you have to see past that. <laughs> you have to see past that. It's the public you need to be. And this is the thing as well. You know, one of the lessons that we take from Labour's period in office or any government's period in office is the public first. Understand where the public are and go from there. And you apply your values to, the, to where the public are. Try, you know, and obviously politicians can move the public and they can influence the public and they can, uh, you know, bring the public with them. And that's a really important function of political leadership. But also just to actually understand the instincts of the country is something that the Labour Party seems to only periodically 
engage with. <laughs> I find that immensely frustrating as well. Okay, what's also then I find intriguing, towards the end of the book, you say, even though Keir Starmer has now taken over the Labour Party uh, leadership, you still feel politically homeless. And you say part of the reason you feel politically homeless is because you're worried about the party. And I want to kind of challenge you a bit on that, if I may, because there are certain parallels, pushback, we don't agree, because you know politics more than I do, back in 94 when Tony Blair became a leader, that people liked him but didn't like the party so much, right? Even though Neil Kinnock did a great job trying to change the image, if you like, of the party. So do you see any parallels between uh, Labour 94, Tony Blair can become a leader, and Keir Starmer now? Yeah, and obviously there are parallels between Starmer and Kinnock. Um, you know, that he's effectively taking over from, although Foot is very different to Kinnock and correctly regarded very differently in Labour history to, to, to Corbyn, sorry. Uh, is that, you know, Starmer is the incremental move perhaps towards a, a more um, centrist, centre-left Labour position. But yes, there are parallels, yeah. And, and as Tony Blair was able to convince the country um, that he changed the party, you know, the, the crucial moment in that isn't just Blair himself, an impressive communicator, an impressive politician with really high levels of emotional intelligence that was key to his connection with the country. It was also that he understood the importance of demonstrating Labour had changed and changing the wording of Clause 4 was a big symbolic move that said to the country, you know, actually, most people don't know what Clause 4 is. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a kind of... <laughs> well, it is. It's a clause of the Labour Party constitution. The public couldn't tell you what right. most of the other clauses are. Labour Party members couldn't tell you. It's kind of an obscure thing, but it was symbolic to Labour people and the public understood that that was a big deal. And to have that moment where you say, right, we're dropping this commitment to nationalisation reassured the country massively. So if Keir Stommer wants to copy Tony Blair, I think he has to do something big. Now, he's taken action on anti-Semitism, mm. but I sense that it needs to be bigger than that because it, the public's issue with Corbyn wasn't just the anti-Semitism. It mm. was some of the harder left stuff. Um, so I think he needs to make a show of, if he wants to win, I think, you know, he, he might not want to do it. But I think if he wants to win, he's got to. But is there still this issue, though, that amongst uh, certain uh, Labour personalities at the highest level, that they don't want to be seen as being too much doing what Tony did 20-odd years ago? And even though they know it should be done, they, they, are, they are just afraid of maybe of, of annoying some of the, of, the, of the party faithful, at least. Well, that's the danger, you know. But if you're, if you're too scared to confront the party, then the public aren't going to trust you. You know, the Labour Party needs to be able to listen to really hard truths. And around 1994, it was prepared to do that. And it was exhausted after constantly losing. You know, Labour's in a similar position now. It's just getting beat. It's lost four elections on the bounce. It's just incredible. Um, and the last one, you know, a total catastrophe. And the Tories have been increasing their share of the vote at each election of all those victories. Remarkable. Mm. Um, and a real damning indictment and, uh, and judgment on where the Labour Party's been. So the Labour Party still can't wake up to the harsh truths of life, then it, it, it destined to remain in opposition. So, and, and that really is the choice is, can you tell, it's not even about whether Keir Starmer wants to tell them, I hope he does. It's does the Labour Party en masse have the kind of emotional capability of hearing those hard truths and accepting them? Because the, I don't think Labour's really analysed why it lost in 2015, 17 or 19. I don't think it's done any real analysis of why it lost the last three. 
um, because it can't confirm. The last thing Labour 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 members want to hear is you're wrong. They want to know there's a different explanation. Well, it's Murdoch. It's the media. It's a the Brexit. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's every other thing. Yes, exactly. It's blame every and for once, you know, turn inward and think maybe we're not getting this right. But be honest about what that is. And I thought some of the uh, fallout from the last election just depressed me. People go, oh, well, actually, people like to have policies. It was just the communications. Yeah, right. It, it was everything. It was the leadership. It was the policies. It was They won the battle lot. of ideas. Was that the phrase? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know how. <laughs> I really don't know how you lose an election in claims <laughs> of the battle of ideas. I really, and, and yeah, I mean, that as well. You know, how you handle a defeat. I think about this so often. Election night, is like a big thing that a lot of people watch. You know, that's the big political... They're the biggest political moments that we have as a democracy. So much of how people put, think of parties for the years after, I think, it's kind of informed by what happens on election night. And I think if leaders go quickly, they go, well, fair enough, you know, I can understand that. I think if politicians are on telly going, well, we won the argument, th that does so much long-term damage because people go, we've just beaten you and you're still not getting the message. <laughs> what is the matter with you? I think, I think all that stuff, you know, takes okay. a long time to undo. Well, before we move on, uh, maybe also ask you about, about political parties generally, about political activism, about party loyalty, all that kind of stuff. We all know we need to have political parties. That's the system of democracy we live under, and they part of the system of government, duh. But in terms of you know, being part of, being in a party and being very active, even though people have the best intentions in the world, and they're very passionate, as we just said, they're very committed and very sincere. It is a kind of strange thing to be doing in your spare time, right? Being a party <laughs> activist. Yeah, I mean, I, I admire people who do it. And obviously, I did it for a long time. And I think if you want to make the world a better place, it's a really good way to spend your time. Because if you're part of a party that can win elections, you know, you, you, the power you've got to change people's lives. Whereas actually, if you're just protesting all the time, it's demoralising. And after a while, you, and the danger is actually people then just become addicted to protest and then actually it serves no purpose whatsoever. You don't get anything done. But I think political activism is a, is a really important and noble thing to do. And I think it's, I really admire people who take the time out of their lives to then knock doors for political parties or, or make the case. And um, even though it's not for me anymore, I guess it makes me kind of a hypocrite. I'm glad that other people do it. Yeah. Because without it, you know, also, it all helps democracy. And I, I sometimes, you know, I get accused yeah. sometimes of being slightly dramatic about this, but democracy is not guaranteed. And right. I think certain things have happened in the last few years that make people realise that actually, you can imagine, it's not too ludicrous to imagine that we might not always live under democracy. These things do need to be nurtured. You do need to kind of water the seed a little bit. And everyone who's out there campaigning for a political party, a mainstream political party, it's kind of helping democracy in that way. Right. And, and this idea, which comes in th throughout your book, that you have to want to, to win power. It's great to be in opposition, but it's much better to be in power. Right? I'm sure you've listened to, as I have been present, many speeches by your, your friend and the bromance, Tony Blair, um, saying, you know, it's, it's nice being in opposition, but it's much better being in government. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, opposition is infuriating. You know, it's just totally... You know, you can't really do anything, and therefore, what? Are you, what and therefore, what? Why would you go into politics if you don't want to change the world? Right. 
So I, I, I imagine I, I can't imagine how frustrating it is to be an opposition MP where you're you're so close to power. You you can yeah. physically almost reach out and touch the government. They are you're as close to them as you're going to get, but you are simultaneously far away. And it must be you know it's only a matter of meters the difference between government and opposition physically in the House of Commons. Uh, it must drive you mad. It must drive you absolutely mad. And of course, there are certain things that backbenchers can do sometimes, tabling amendments to bills. But really, the really, really big, important business of politics is only done in government. And it, yeah, I just find opposition it, almost entirely futile. It's, it's, it's <laughs> right. Yes. Let's, let's move on, man. This is getting too painful, maybe. <laughs> let's, let's try and lighten the, the, the atmosphere a bit by talking about a spitting image. Okay. Yes. Uh, first question, you should probably groan when you hear me ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, first of all, you probably weren't even around when it was first broadcast. You're a strip of a lad, so maybe you weren't even, a, you know, you were not even a fetus when it was first broadcast. Um, but more seriously, do you know why it was brought, it's being brought back now at this moment in time? Well, I vaguely remember it. Um, I'm 37, so it was kind of just, it was just about still on when I was growing up. You know, I, I remember it being on, but I, I, I can't claim to have watched it a lot back then. Um, although I did have the 1996 video they did after England lost to Germany. So I, I really liked that, but it wasn't, it, it doesn't mean the same to my generation that it does to the generation before. Um, I mean, I think it's really overdue. I think we've needed to spit an image for five or ten years. Um, in fact, you know, as long as you keep updating it, it should never really be off. You know, it's something that should always be able to continue. So I was really frustrated at its absence, really, in some really important times. I think it would have been amazing to have it for the Scottish independence referendum, for the Brexit referendum, for, for everything that's happened with mm. Corbyn. You know, we've kind of we've missed out on a spitting image view of that world, which is a shame. But I think things obviously reach such a point, And I think there's just huge public desire for it. I think it's a mixture of a number of different things. Um, but I think that the kind of the case for it, I guess, became overwhelming. Well, I said in the intro, you're both a writer and a performer. So how did you get those two gigs in the first place? Well, I got the I got the performing gig. So I do kind of imp I impersonate politicians as part of my live stand up shows. So I've kind of been known as in the last few years, I was doing Trump and Boris a lot on tour. And that was like a big part of the show. And I impersonated Trump on another TV show that I did. So I kind of got known as doing Trump and Boris a fair bit. Um, so last year, they wanted to just make a kind of five-minute quick episode just to see you know, if it was viable, I guess. Um, and I did Trump on that. And then as it incrementally and as it got commissioned and then the show started to gear up, I was asked if I'd like to write on it, which is a huge honour, and if I would like to do um, Boris Johnson, Donald Trump and Keir Starmer. So... These things always happen incrementally. You know, I always imagined and people imagine that you get a call and they go, spit an image. We're going to make you a star, kid. We want you to be the writer on this show. You know, these things are always kind of slightly in the ether and then they get penciled in your diary and then they get confirmed the day before. And there's a kind of, uh, it's always slightly less satisfactory than you'd imagine in terms of like the process of getting these things. You know, they kind of just creep up on you rather than there's like a big, you don't sign a big contract or anything like that. You know, it's kind of, you go, oh, yeah, we talked about that the other week. Okay. And it's <laughs> without being flippant about what a, an honor it is to be working on this magnificent show. Um, and when you're doing these voices, uh, these three guys you just mentioned, are they always your, your lines, your jokes, or are they also spouting words of, of other writers? 
Yeah, it's a mixture. So I write for the puppets that I voice and other people write for those puppets and I write for puppets that I don't voice. You know, yeah. it's just, we all work on it. And, and some of the sketches are done collaboratively. So it's, it's a mixture of things. So you can write sketches individually and, and pitch those in. And then two days a week, we have these big Zoom, because obviously we can't do it in person, Zoom writers rooms where we'll uh, come up with ideas and uh, we'll kind of workshop sketches as a collective, nine or 10 of us. And then the following day, um, some of those sketches that have been written up will be put to the room and we go line by line right. and, you know, either tear it to shreds, um, improve lines here or there, completely change it, leave it unchanged. So it goes through, there are various different processes of this kind of sausage uh, machine uh, that, that lead to the, the episode that you end up seeing. Am I right in saying that when you're performing a sketch uh, where your to the voices are your voices well provided by you like trump and, and boris for obvious uh, it's a good example you don't actually you, you record those kind of separately is that right and then join them together later yes so i'll i'll just record them in my, and i've done it all in my spare room so on this microphone <laughs> and on this laptop that i'm talking to you now this is where i've been writing on spitting image and recording all my stuff has just been done in here it's surreal but yes yeah, so i'll get the i'll get the uh, script over email and if it's say boris and trump together um, I will, someone else um, at the other end, usually a producer, will kind of just read out the other person's lines. And I'll, you know, I would react to them as Trump's. I'll go, great to see you, Boris. How you doing? <laughs> and then he'll go, great to see you. And I'll go, what are we going to talk about today? And he'll go, oh, we're going to talk about a trade deal. Trade deal. So, and then we'll flip it. And he'll go, I'll go, oh, Donald, great to see you. And he'll go, what are we talking about today? Oh, we need to talk about, are oh, you fish? And are you getting a bloody deal out of the... And then, yes, afterwards, they then get stitched together. So when it's the two of them, I mean, it's surreal anyway, watching Spitting Image and doing one of the puppets. It's really weird when it's a scene when it's just those two and I'm doing both of them. I should, for the benefit of our listeners who can't see what you're doing, you're actually providing all the, the gestures as well as the voice, which is hilarious. So thank you very much for that project. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> and I do that. I do that when I'm recording it. I find it helps, you know, to really uh, get, you know, great uh, honour to be on the uh, 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 encompass uh, podcast, <laughs> uh, which I, you know, I listen to regularly. Uh, and then, you know, it, it kind of helps. It helps the sound, you know, with Trump as well, the kind of the grimace in the face. Yeah. It's a great honor to be talking to Pete Allenson. He's <laughs> a great, great podcaster from Belgium. You know, just doing right. the face really helps the voice. And is it right also that it's a kind of global program with a kind of uh, have a global audience? Uh, and what impact does that have on your writing and making sure that it's accessible to different kinds of audiences? Well, there's a, the, the team is mixed. So uh, Jeff Westbrook runs the show. Uh, he's uh, And he used to run The Simpsons and Futurama. So he kind of you know, collaboratively amongst the Brits and the, and the Americans that work on it, we find the stuff that works. And there's some sketches, I think you can tell by watching it, you know, that are very British and there are some sketches that feel more American. Um, but it, it all kind of has the same sort of flavour running through it. And it's quite a nice challenge, actually, to think, I might try some American sketches. Not that, you know, <laughs> they'll obviously be broadcast here, but to think, oh, what would I do with, you know, um, Billie Eilish or or some of the celebrities, LeBron James, you know, people that mm. are more kind of well-known in America than they are here. It's quite a nice challenge. I suppose, actually, if you were to have uh, sort of European leaders, maybe do for all I know, in the sketch, like Emmanuel Macron springs to mind, you could probably get away with a kind of, kind of card Maurice Chevalier accent because nobody else would know how Emmanuel Macron really speaks. As well, opposed that's to right. Donald Trump or Boris Johnson. That's a very good point. I don't, we do have Macron and we have Angela Merkel. Um... But 
I don't do the voices for those, but yes, I think you could, you know, I think you could absolutely get away with a fairly cod <laughs> French accent. Uh, I'm not sure a British audience would know exactly how Macron sounds. <laughs> okay, a final question to wrap up and to go back to your, your basically, I think your first love, stand up comedy. Obviously, with the pandemic, there's a huge restrictions on the ability of people like yourself, live performers, to perform. Uh, apart from the financial side, maybe you can make a reasonably honest living doing other things like doing other things like spitting image. But yeah. in terms of the need to be out there and, and connect with an audience. How much are you and your and your and your fellow performers feeling the the, the loss of a, of a live audience? It, it, it's so strange to have not done it for so long now. I don't think I've been on stage since February or March. Stand up is such a special job to do. It's a, you're really lucky if you can make a living doing it, and there really is no threat. Working on spitting image is brilliant, and doing radio shows is brilliant, and all those other things. But there is something about live comedy in an you know in, in a live venue just you and an audience and a microphone that is really just the the simplicity of it but the high wire acts of comedy is really revealed live you know with telly you can edit and rewrite and all that stuff when it's just a comedian on stage on their own with an audience you know part of the thrill is the kind of risk of it and the th you know, just as an adrenaline rush. I haven't had an adrenaline rush for, <laughs> since March. You know, my body's kind of missing it. I like the thrill of going on stage. I like the, the sharpness that it brings to my thinking. Right. You know, just before you go on, I sometimes have some of my best ideas because your brain really kicks in at that point. And just selfishly, it's great touring around the UK, going to different cities, playing in beautiful venues with audiences that are great. You know, just purely selfishly, it's a great job. to. There is no feeling on earth like making a room full of people laugh. It's okay. such a brilliant feeling. And it just feels really odd not to have that. It's, okay. uh, I, I can't wait until we can get back to normal. Well, I'm sure your, your fans can't wait to see you back as well. Matt, we have to leave it there. Just, just to remind our audience, particularly Homeless is a, is a fantastic read. Uh, it's, I think it's already a success. Uh, thanks to people like J.K. Rowling and Tony Blair, and now me saying it's a great book. So, uh, <laughs> thank, thank you very much for your time, Matt Ford. Paul, that was such a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>